Welcome to the Atlantic World. Episode 8, The Lost Colonies of Virginia. Part 1, The Lane Colony. So, I'm not gonna lie, I'm incredibly excited for today's episode because we finally get to talk about a subject that is near and dear to my heart and the focus of a lot of my own research. That's right, we finally get to talk about the founding of British America. So, the first successful English colony in America would be the settlement of Jamestown in Virginia, which got off the ground in 1607. But we're going to do a little bit of backtracking today because our last episode dealt exclusively with the conflicts breaking out across the Netherlands and France, and the rest of the world wasn't just waiting around for Dutch independence in the meanwhile. So let's talk about what England was up to in the final decades of the 15th century. So you may be expecting the story of the Pilgrims and the Mayflower, but that's much later around 1620 with the founding of the Plymouth Colony. In fact, we're not even going to be talking about Jamestown today. No, that milestone was preceded by two failed expeditions to an obscure island off the coast of North Carolina called Roanoke. But why is England getting to America such a big deal in the first place? Well, this is the earliest example of what we can realistically call the long history of the United States of America, a country that has had an enormous impact on the history of the world. Yes, I know, we're still in the 1500s and the United States officially didn't exist until 1776, but we are talking about a much larger social and cultural history of the Americas that like it or not, is going to have a direct connection to all of that European colonization that went on. All of the culture, language, politics and religion that arrived with the first settlers didn't just go out the window when the Declaration of Independence was signed. And even American patriots who took up arms against the crown often framed their revolution as a defense of their natural-born rights as Englishmen, that the rights and protections of the English constitution were brought with them and were often enshrined in the colonial charters that defined their homes. Alongside that, you've got a lot of cultural transfer going on in the intervening 200 years. As more and more people began to emigrate, colonies became natural melting pots for merchants, artisans and labourers from all over the world. Or in some cases, you get colonies that are established to provide a safe haven for a specific subgroup within a culture like Pennsylvania's Quakers or Maryland's Catholics. You may even argue that the first two successful colonies, Plymouth and Virginia, set the stage for conflicts that would take centuries to come to a head. With Virginia settled by courtly Elizabethan nobles, and New England settled by strictly pious Puritans. As a result, these two colonies became quite distinct from each other, despite their similar origins under the English crown. And as they grew, established that long-lasting division between Northern and Southern American culture that became irreconcilable by the 1860s with the outbreak of the American Civil War. But today we're going to be talking about the Roanoke Colony. You've probably heard of it, no doubt due to American Horror Story. But the colony was the first attempt by the English to settle in Virginia, and was eventually abandoned following the disappearance of the colonists, which still remains a mystery to this day. 
The story of the colony comes in two parts, so we'll be doing this topic in two parts. This episode deals largely with the very first attempt to establish a military presence on Roanoke Island, which was eventually evacuated. Then in the next episode, we'll talk about the second attempt which ended with the disappearance of the colonists the following year. So, it's a two-parter this time, okay? Alright, let's begin. The first real effort towards settling Virginia began with the decorated and Devon-born Sir Humphrey Gilbert, who was known in late Elizabethan England for entertaining prospective patrons from his London home in the hopes of funding a voyage to America. He had won a string of military achievements which he used to attract a, well let's say richer form of client, because colonies and ships were not cheap, like, at all. The crew, the ships, the food, the horses, the weapons, the families, the masons, the carpenters, the soldiers, basically everything needed to start an English life anew in a world anew. Nevertheless, after selling off a lot of land in America that he'd never even seen himself, he managed to finance a small fleet of ships and round up enough prospective settlers to set forth for America. What the Indians of Virginia thought about all this was anyone's guess, because they obviously had no clue that their land was being divvied up by some English bureaucrats 3,000 miles away. The journey was actually not too bad. The fleet of five ships departed England in 1583, and Gilbert had brought along musicians he'd hoped would entertain the locals they would meet on their arrival. So the settlers had something to keep them occupied on the long, monotonous voyage. But one of the captains, a Mr. Walter Raleigh, who was Gilbert's half-brother, had to sail back to England due to a lack of supplies not long into the journey, bringing the fleet down to four ships. About midway through the journey, the fleet lost another ship. Maurice Brown, the captain of the Swallow, had decided to engage in a bit of piracy, because why not? But they hadn't told anyone, and caused the fleet to engage in a brief but frantic search. Meanwhile, Brown and his crew had managed to capture two French ships, one loaded with wine and fancy clothing. Once the rest of the fleet finally caught sight of the Swallow, they were shocked to find the whole crew blind drunk and wearing all the finery they had looted on their mini-adventure. But the fleet was reunited and back on track. Many captains had begun to express concern about their remaining supplies though, which had to not only last the voyage but also the initial setting up of a colony. So they diverted north towards Newfoundland, which was known at the time as one of the richest sources of fish in the western world. There they could resupply before heading on to greener pastures. Newfoundland was depressing. It was barren, it was mountainous, and it was much colder than England. They weren't the only ones around either. The harbour of St John's on the western tip of the island had been a notable fishing ground since John Cabot had sailed there in 1497, and a settlement had existed on the spot as far back as 1519. When Gilbert and company arrived, they found it to be crammed with fishing fleets from all across Europe. But undeterred, Gilbert sailed into the harbour with as much pomp and ceremony as he could muster. He claimed the island for Queen Elizabeth and the Kingdom of England, and managed to get one of his ships stuck on the rocks. You can only imagine how embarrassing it was for him to ask the local fishermen to tow him out. Nevertheless, the English fishing captains were naturally delighted, 
Whilst the Spanish and Portuguese captains were probably not super buzzed about all these English guys on their turf, claiming these plentiful fishing grounds for England alone. But despite claiming territory at the drop of a hat, everyone on the voyage agreed that Newfoundland sucked, and they resolved to press on south to more temperate climes. Sadly, they'd find nothing of the sort, because once the fleet departed, they were struck by a storm and mired in endless fog. Maurice Brown, our part-time pirate from earlier, had now been transferred to the Delight, the pride of the fleet and the vessel responsible for most of the colony's supplies. Unfortunately, the Delight had been drawn into shallow waters and was unable to steer clear of the rocks that lined the coast. The ship was ripped apart in the seas, with Brown and all hands lost along with most of the colony's supplies. All of Gilbert's resolve had pretty much disappeared with the Delight and the remaining captains and settlers urged for a return to England, to which Gilbert reluctantly agreed. Unfortunately, he too would be claimed by the seas on the return journey, being last seen by one of the surviving vessels reading a book on deck and crying out, We are as near to heaven by sea as by land. Later that day, the ship's lights were seen to go out as it was consumed by the sea, probably succumbing to damage from the storm. Needless to say, the expedition was an outright failure. But surprisingly, Gilbert's demise did little to deter future investments in American colonies, and led to the rise of Walter Raleigh, who we mentioned earlier very briefly. Walter Raleigh is a bit of an enigma. There is a lot we don't know about him, especially in his early years. We know he might have been born around January 1552, that he grew up in Devon, and that he was deeply Protestant, with his family having been nearly ousted from the country during the reign of the Catholic Queen Mary. His career is also sometimes conflicting, with him having dropped out of Oxford University, only to then complete his education in law at the Inns of Court before being admitted to the Middle Temple, a professional association for practitioners of law in Old England, but then recounted in 1603 that he had never studied law, so Raleigh has proved himself a headache for historians for centuries. The only background you really need to know is that he was a bit overzealous when it came to subjugating the Irish. This made a name for himself in the process that he used to get in good with the Queen. But we aren't here to probe Raleigh's past, we're here to talk about America. So let's fast forward. In short, Raleigh showed off to the Queen and got in her good books enough to be awarded a royal charter in 1584 to colonise and rule any, quote, remote, heathen and barbarous lands, countries and territories not actually possessed of any Christian prince or inhabited by Christian people, in return for the usual one-fifth of all the shiny stuff they might pinch to be gifted to the crown. Raleigh had seven years to get this done, or his rights would be forfeit. So the clock was ticking and he had just shy of a decade to transplant a fully functioning English society 3,000 miles across the ocean. Yeah, good luck with that. For anyone who is interested in a more detailed look at these kinds of men and their rise to prominence in Elizabethan society, you should read Big Chief Elizabeth by Giles Milton, which is the main source I'm using for this part of the episode. It's a rich and entertaining portrayal of the achievements and calamities that came with establishing a successful colony in the 1500s. So if anything in this episode strikes you as interesting, but you wish I'd expanded on it, go get that book. You won't be disappointed. 
Right, so, the first big step towards this Virginia project would take place that same year with the Amadas Barlow expedition. It was launched in April 1584 and aimed to explore the territory that Raleigh had claimed to in his charter. The expedition arrived in July at Hatteras Island, which is part of a strip of barrier islands off the coast of what is now North Carolina. If you look at a map of the coast, you can see just how terrible the whole area is for navigating via a giant lumbering wooden ship. You can also see that I've been calling it Virginia all this time, and that this is all clearly taking place in North Carolina. Well, we are talking about a time before North Carolina was a thing, and at this time the area was part of the very northern frontier of the Spanish Empire, and the whole venture was funded by the Virginia Company, a board of rich dudes in London who had significant investment in the project. So for the purposes of this episode, the whole wider area is going to be called Virginia. For now. The voyage encountered the Secatan, a tribal group inhabiting the islands who had likely encountered or at least heard of all these Europeans before. The English spoke highly of the hospitality of the Indians, but wanted more information as a way to entice people back in England to get on board with the project. So, they managed to convince two individuals to accompany them back home. One of these men was Manteo, a Croatoan chief, and the other was Wanchis, a Secatan chief. The expedition returned to England that same year, and as you can imagine, their passengers caused quite a stir in English society. But the clock was ticking, and Raleigh wanted to focus on communication and information before publicity and assigned the scientist Thomas Harriet to translate their language. The two Americans were both housed at Raleigh's London Manor, and interestingly had opposite reactions to their situation. Manteo displayed an interest in learning English and engaging with his hosts, whilst Wanchis was rightly reluctant and suspicious of English intent in the New World, eventually referring to himself as a hostage rather than a guest. But both men would return to America in April 1585, along with Harriet acting as translator and to announce to the local tribes the English intent to settle in that area. Manteo seemed to go along with the whole thing, having become quite close to Raleigh and English culture during his stay, but Wanchis managed to give the English the slip and encourage his brethren to resist the newcomers. But due to the spotty record we have of this era, not much more detail comes up about the two men, we know that they sail to England a second time, and upon returning, Wanchis openly severs his connection with the English, and will appear in the story later on. Meanwhile, Sir Walter Raleigh had now been knighted by Elizabeth, and granted the rank of Knight Lord and Governor of Virginia. He had his title, he had his claim, he had his riches. Time to get colonising. The first fleet of Raleigh's consisted of five principal vessels, the Tiger, Roebuck, Red Lion, Elizabeth and Dorothy, and they left Plymouth in April 1585. The expedition would be overseen by two men, Sir Richard Grenville, a sailor who would be responsible mostly for the fleet, and Sir Ralph Lane, a military man who was to execute Raleigh's instructions on the ground in America. The details of the story are neat, but not really relevant but suffice to say that there was another storm, more privateering, two failed forts, and a lot of salt. Finally, after being separated from the fleet and cruising around the Caribbean, the Tiger and Elizabeth entered the Ocracoke Inlet in North Carolina's Outer Banks, 
just south of where the colony would be founded. But the Tiger ran aground on a shoal and all of the ship's provisions were ruined by salt water. All of a sudden there wasn't enough food remaining to support all of the colonists, and the marshy waters and land were clearly not suited for harbouring ships, so finding a more suitable area was a top priority. With the Tiger eventually seaworthy again following some repairs, they managed to regroup with the Roebuck and Dorothy which had completed their voyage a few weeks earlier. The Red Lion arrived soon after, but decided to dump its passengers and cargo before going off on a jolly to Newfoundland for, you guessed it, privateering. Meanwhile, Lane found Grenville hot-headed and vain, and the two argued endlessly, which made things even more stressful. But because of the loss of provisions, the colonists who remained in America would have to make do with what they had. It was now June, well past the season for planting crops, and the next relief mission had only just left England and would probably take another three months to arrive, and that's if the conditions were good. But what the colonists didn't know is that the fleet had been redirected to Newfoundland, not Virginia, mostly because the Spanish had started attacking English shipping in retaliation for all the privateering going on, so um, yeah, good job guys. This meant that the colonists would be reliant on the Indians for all of their extra supplies until the English could get a relief effort all the way to Virginia past Spanish waters that dominated the coast of North America. And since Wanchis had pretty much done a circuit of all the tribes saying resist the English, well, I wouldn't get my hopes up. Grenville thought it prudent to explore the area, reach out to nearby tribes and open dialogues if possible. And they might have had a chance at succeeding too, had Grenville not been convinced that the villagers of Aguascogoc had stolen a silver cup and decided that the appropriate punishment was burning down the entire village and all their crops. Strategic geniuses, these guys were not. Raleigh seemingly insisted on his subordinates adopting a stance of intimidation against the local tribes, despite his colony's entire reliance on their hospitality. It was now approaching August 1585, and whilst Grenville had been conducting, um, diplomacy, if you want to call it that, Lane and his 107 settlers had been busy constructing a rudimentary fort on the northern tip of the island. To be fair, Roanoke lay in a pretty defensible position, away from the mainland, but also guarded from Spanish naval attacks by the Outer Banks. Once the fort was completed, Lane up and left for England, promising to return in April of 1586 with more supplies and colonists. And in his absence, the English attitudes towards the neighbouring tribes continued to be a harsh one. There are instances of kidnappings in order to extort food and supplies, which most likely came as a result of April 1586 passing by with still no word from Grenville, who had sailed for England and been sidetracked by capturing a Spanish galleon and delivering it home as a prize to be converted into a warship. But that galleon was loaded with treasure, which somehow convinced investors in London that everything was going absolutely grand for the colonists, because look at all this money Grenville brought back. But as you can guess, everything was not going fine. The colonists had barely managed to survive the winter by acquiring food from the tribes either through trade or by force, and despite settling in some of the most fertile land on the continent, still had no idea how to plant crops in America. 
Meanwhile, most of the explorers and scientists associated with the expedition had spent their time roaming the Chesapeake Bay, bringing one final gift from the old world to the new. They had been making note of natural resources and tribal affiliations, but they also noticed that with each village they visited, the inhabitants began to suffer from an outbreak of influenza or smallpox soon after their departure, definitely due to the spread of old world diseases that new world populations had never been exposed to before. The science of the time had no way to explain the cause of the illnesses. One account tells of an afflicted chief who recovered after receiving prayers from the English. The chief was impressed and requested the colonists tend to nearby communities in the same way. As you can guess, the focused English intervention in nearby villages only made the spread of the disease much worse. 1586, however, would see the short-lived colony's failure. By spring, the usually accommodating tribes had shifted towards cautious observation, with some leaders calling for retribution over the heavy-handed approach the English had taken since their arrival. Hostilities were bound to explode at some point, it just depended on whether the English would be able to survive with what little resources they had left. Lane had eventually returned with some relief, but Grenville was still lagging behind and had promised to arrive by Easter with more supplies. All the while, the colony juggled with rumoured threats of imminent attack as well as hints at more suitable and profitable areas to expand to in the north. In March, Lane took 40 men on an expedition 100 miles up the Roanoke River, only to be met with repeated ambushes. He dragged his remaining defeated force back to the colony, who believed the party to be dead. Alongside this, Grenville's fleet hadn't arrived, and in fact hadn't even left England yet. By April, the remaining goodwill the English had with their Sekutan allies was about to collapse. Whilst all this had been going on, there was a continued back and forth of intrigue, hostility and negotiation with the tribes who had only stayed their hand because of a few outspoken council elders. Chief Pemi Sapan of the Sekatan generally followed the advice of his council on how to deal with the English and had allowed his people to construct fishing infrastructure on the island to support the colonists, whilst also having his son Skiko kept as Lane's hostage. But the goodwill of the Sekatan would end with the return of Wanchis, who had now risen to become a prominent figure amongst the Sekatan inner circle, and still maintained his view that the English were nothing but a threat. The tribe then broke off entirely from the island, and took with them all the supplies and assistance they had offered the English so far. This caused the colonists to resort to literally begging and foraging in order to survive. But Pemisapan had grown wealthy from his close ties with the colonists, trading food for copper and supplies that he used as financial incentives in order to recruit allies for an attack on the English. He met regularly with Skiko in English captivity, who, despite his father's growing hostility, believed that good relations with the colonists was a must. Skiko then informed Lane of his father's intentions, revealing that a war council was planned for June 10th, with a goal to ambush the colonists at night. Armed with this information, and hoping to force Pemisipan's hand, Lane spread rumours that English reinforcements were arriving imminently, forcing the Sekatan to advance their plans to May 31st. The next day, June 1st, Lane and his men approached the meeting place in force, 
under the guise of discussing Skiko's position as a hostage. Naturally, this was a sensitive topic to the Sekatan who allowed the English to enter, but Lane ordered his men to attack, leading Pemisapan to flee and later be captured and killed. His severed head was returned to the colony and planted on a spike outside the Roanoke Fort. Acutely aware that they had just made enemies with everyone in the area, the colonists made contact with Sir Francis Drake. He was passing by after a successful raid in the Caribbean and hoping to drop off his cargo of slaves, refugees and equipment to help the colonists. But after seeing the sorry state of things, left enough supplies and a ship to alleviate their troubles. But a hurricane swept the ship out to sea, which lowered the general morale so much that Lane decided to order an evacuation aboard Drake's fleet. Of the colonists who evacuated, three remained on Roanoke, and no one seems to know what happened to them. Alongside these three individuals were most likely the refugees and slaves that Drake had arrived with. Drake's fleet had returned to England by July 1586, and no record of arrivals exists except for the crew and the colonists. Some scholars suggest that to make space for the colonists' evacuation, those poor individuals deemed as excess were unfortunately abandoned on the island along with the supplies originally set aside for the colony. Due to the scarcity of records and the contextual regard for slaves as mere cargo on a ship like Drake's, any evidence of their fate is sadly impossible to determine. Oh, and what about Grenville? Well, he rolled up days after the evacuation with a year's worth of supplies and 400 soldiers in tow. But it was too little too late, and finding no trace of the colonists, managed to get an account of the evacuation from some nearby villagers. Grenville returned to England whilst leaving behind a small detachment of 15 soldiers to maintain Raleigh's claim to the island. According to accounts from the Croatoan Indians of the area, these men were ambushed by an alliance of tribes most likely seeking retribution for the death of Pemisapan. Two were killed, and 13 survivors escaped on small boats, never to be seen again. If you're wondering why for an episode about establishing a colony we've still focused nearly entirely on ships, soldiers and skirmishes, well, that's because the early American colonies were not what we'd call a settler colony. The later colonies of the American mainland sought to transplant English town life into America, whereas these earliest attempts are still very much focused on establishing a strong English military presence, in order to gain the subjugation of the locals and extract as much profit from the venture as possible. This is probably a big reason why they failed. These early English military ventures were focused on projecting force and power before anything resembling a functioning society had evolved to support the project. It's a lesson the English will have learnt by the time they successfully settled Jamestown. I could have done this in one big episode, and that would make sense because most histories of the Roanoke colony do lump the 1585 and 1587 colonies into one big story. They were both chartered by Walter Raleigh, they both took place on the same island, but they involved different settlers and different leaders on the ground. So, it would have been a bit jarring to get into the story surrounding Gilbert, Grenville and Lane, only to pull a sneaky halfway through and introduce a whole new cast of characters. 
Also, given the interest I have in the subject, I absolutely cannot promise that having it as one big episode wouldn't be an almightily bloated and unwieldy story that wouldn't be fun for anyone. It's also worth noting that I could have spent a great deal more time explaining the complexity of Indian involvement in these failed colonies, especially as it helps to understand the shifting alliances and structures of tribal confederations, which often get swept under the rug during early American history. But devoting more time to that will require an entire episode of its own going into something that has already been superbly explored in Giles Milton's book Big Chief Elizabeth, the one that I mentioned earlier in the episode. It does a much better job of detailing tribal context in this patch of history than I ever could. And when we're a little further down the line, we're going to see more and more colonies interacting with their Indian neighbours, giving us a far better context in which to explore the changes that tribal infrastructures underwent following their repeated encounters with Europeans. Next time, we return to Roanoke Island to talk about how the English managed to screw it up all over again, and we explore the mysterious disappearance of all the island's approximately 120 English settlers. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.